Greetings, everyone. Richard Solomon taking care of business. My father's place radio and out of the question. When we are listening to new music, there is no doubt, there is no doubt that we have an artist in residence. So we welcome Joe Rafano to the studio. And Joe Rafano, uh, you can catch him at JoeRafano.com. See, that's easy, right? All right, so welcome to the studio. And uh, Hey, nice to be here. Right, now, you have an incredible resume. You, uh, Herman's uh, Hermits, uh, <laughs> Mickey Dolan's, uh, you know, just to name a few people. Why don't, you, why don't you share some of this great legacy with us? Well, uh, growing up in the 60s, I guess, it was a natural thing to become a musician. My father was a musician. My mother was a singer. My brother, my cousins, my uncles, they were all musicians. So I kind of slipped into it. I, I always loved rock and roll. And uh, I guess late 50s, I, I really was into what was going on. And I, I wanted to play the tenor sax. But okay. they told me that I had to play the clarinet, which to this day, I, I, I don't know. if that Was that something that they did because it was easier for them? Um, something about the fingerings. If you learn how to play that, you can play anything. So I said, well, uh, do I get to play the tenor sax at some point? And they said, sure. They lied. <laughs> but I, I became a really good, sax, uh, really good uh, clarinet player as a little kid, uh, so much so that when I was... Um, in junior high, I was playing in the, in the high school band and orchestra and all that sort of thing. So, then the Beatles came along, and there there were no clarinets in the Beatles. So, I became a drummer. Really? Because I had the rhythm in me, I guess. You know. Okay. And, and I uh, I can play, I could keep beat, and I I have even to this day I've got great time. So I uh, became a drummer, banging on a on a, a literally it's like it's like the silly story that you hear. I was banging on a small garbage can. A waste paper basket and driving my mother completely insane. My mother is only twenty years older than I am, so at least she she could deal with it somewhat. But after you know months of begging, pleading, and all of that, I actually got a small drum set and uh, became the singing drummer. I met a guy named Les Stoller, who maybe you know. I actually do. <laughs> there you go. When <laughs> I was, I, yeah. I guess I was about thirteen or fourteen, and. Um, uh, another guy that I met around that time was somebody by the name of Jimmy Sabella, who you may know also, Sabella Studios, very successful in Roslyn Heights. He's had numerous gold records and what have you. And we formed a band. What was the name of the band? That band was called The Roundabouts. Actually, we went through a series of names, The Noisy Neighbors. Uh, <laughs> That's a cool name. <laughs> the Roundabouts. Uh, I, I actually played with a fellow by the name of Richie Rector. May he rest. He's no longer with us, but... Uh, he was also a really a fine musician, and uh, I was the I was the name maker. I would make up all the names for these bands. So I told him, "Okay, you are Ricky and the Cyclones," which was our uh, band that I actually was only twelve years old at that time. That ba that band's claim to fame was that we won the uh, actually we didn't win we came in second at the Malvern Talent Show. Wow, which is really a big deal. From what they tell me, it's still going on. You know, 50-some-odd years later, there's still people, you know, every year doing the Malvern Talent Show. And, uh, and have they asked you back to be a celebrity judge? <laughs> no, they haven't, but uh, which maybe might be a good thing. I'm making a call after the show. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I'm going to call I'm going to call them up. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's funny. I remember that because it's just, it's, it was such an amazing thing. The Beatles' I Feel Fine uh, had just been released. And here we were, four 12-year-old guys. And um, we got the record, and we all huddled that afternoon, and we said, wow, we should play this at the talent show. And we did. 
Wow. That's... And then apparently it worked because we came in second to a guy, uh, a teenager much older than us, who was a comedian. And he was, you know, pretty funny. I, I don't know how funny he was. I mean, some of the stuff was probably over my head. I mean, I was literally 11 and three quarters. So, um, but, but think of that accomplishment for you at such a tender young age to, to come so far so yeah, fast. Yeah. It was, it was that's amazing. Cool. That's, a, that's a great achievement. You yeah, know? It, was, it was cool. I mean, we talked about it for years after that. But, uh, yeah, so that was the beginning of all of this. But, uh, yeah, I've been playing in bands and all of that since I was, yeah, 11. All right. So, wait, wait, wait. wait I don't want to skip anything. So, you're 11 years old. Did, did, at that point, have you bought your first... Forty-five, seventy-eight, thirty-three. Anything? Uh, oh yeah, you know? a lot of well, a lot of. My dad worked for Channel Five Television. Okay. Uh, in, in what capacity? He was a video operator. Okay. He was hired in nineteen forty-eight, a couple of years before they actually went on the air, and um, he was the sixth guy hired by Dumont. Wow. W A B D TV, and so I basically grew up in a TV studio, and one of the perks of being the son of a guy in that position was that they would get all kinds of stuff that they were going to either use promotional or they would throw away and he would bring on boxes of records. So I had zillions of 45s. I had a lot of Elvis. Um, the Everly Brothers were my particular favorite and I had all their stuff. But all that 50s, Buddy Holly. And I was a little kid. I mean, in 1959, I was only seven years old, but I loved Sam Cooke. Uh, the Everleys. Elvis, you know, it's a funny thing about Elvis. I was never a big Elvis guy until I got older and I realized what he was actually doing. Um, you know, all my older cousins, all the females, they all loved them. Maybe that had something to do with me not being able to dig them. You know, the rebellion thing. If they like them, I can't. You know, that one of those deals. Oh, but so I love that you're, music. You're also a rocker. You're a rocker. <laughs> That's true. But, you know, when I became older and I could actually understand... You know, I realized that 1950s Elvis was a serious dude. I mean, John Lennon put it best when he said before Elvis, there was nothing. I mean, so. And <laughs> Tchaikovsky. <laughs> yeah, really. Beethoven, all of that. None of that counted, you know what I mean? But I understand what Lennon was, what he was getting at. But um, for me, it was the Beatles. And, you know, I was a funny kid, though, because my father, the night the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, my father, I was up in my room doing who knows what an 11 and three-quarter year old guy does, reading comic books maybe, and they said, come on down and see these guys on TV. And I had heard, you know, the girls in the neighborhood talking about the Beatles are coming, the Beatles are coming, and I was like, the Beatles? And every drawing or anything that had to do with the Beatles was always a beetle, you know, a bug with antennas. So I really had no idea what it was all about. And I went down and I watched the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. And it wasn't that I was like a wise guy or I was arrogant or I mean, at that age, no. But I saw them and I was like, oh, the Everly Brothers. <laughs> because Lennon and McCartney's vocal harmony sounded so much like it. And it wasn't until years later that they themselves said that they had patterned themselves after the Everly Brothers. And um, which uh, to me, it seemed pretty obvious. You know, because at that age, I was I had no preconceptions about anything. I just heard it, and that that's what it sounded like to me. So I didn't really get the Beatles. The whole Beatles thing really didn't wash over me until, a, like, a few more months had passed. Okay. And then it, it, and then I, it just, like, it was, it was a tidal wave. I mean, it just crushed me. I mean, I washed up, you know, bleeding and, and from every orifice, you know, mucus and salt water coming out of my nose. I mean, I just... 
from that point onward, it was just, it was an ill, it was a sickness. I mean, I loved them. And uh, it never went away. I mean, I've read damn near every book. If I haven't read them all, I've probably read close to it. Um, saw the Beatles in 1966 at Shea Stadium. I was 14 years old. That was the second Shea wow. concert. Uh, I have seen Ringo. So let's go back. Wait. I was okay. Go ahead. All right. I don't want you know. We have an hour, which is good. Yeah, <laughs> right. More, but well. So when you saw the Beatles at Shea Stadium, were you actually able to hear them over the screen? Yes. Okay. How was the sound? Because I think it was good. Because because I'm sure that in those days, I'm sure the sound systems were more primitive than they are today. Well, the amps they were using were a joke. I mean, I remember George Harrison in an interview saying that they made a special amp for us. It was 50 watts. Ooh. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, honestly, I, I don't think it's selective memory, but I thought I heard everything fine. All right. And what they were doing was something interesting. They were using, not only were they using a small PA system on the stage where they were set up, because they had no monitors or anything, but they somehow had taken a feed out of whatever they were doing, and it was coming through the, the stadium speakers like that they used to announce a baseball right. game. Right. Uh, but I heard it. I mean, I remember it. Did anybody open for them? Oh, yeah, sure. Who, who opened for them, if you Actually, remember? Actually, there were a few acts. Yeah. Well, let me, warm, let me warm up to that by saying that it only cost $5 to see the Beatles in 1966. Wow. And, I, of course, I had to beg my mother for six months to give me the money because $5 back then was... Five dollars. I mean, a gallon of gasoline was twenty cents. Right, right, right. You know, and you got dishes or something or glasses yeah. when you went to the gas station. So yeah, it yeah. was a big deal. But yeah, uh, Bobby Hebb, Sonny, Sonny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the first act, and then Ronnie Spector and the Ronettes. Wow. And they did. I, I don't remember exactly how long they run. Maybe a few numbers, and then the Circle, which was Brian Epstein's only American act. And I love the circle. I always have. I, they had a very unique, melodic sense for pop music. One of my all-time faves as far as that era. Then they came on and did Red Rubber Ball and, you know, their stuff. You know, Turn Down Day. Uh, some great stuff. And then the Beatles came on. So wow. you got all of that for five bucks. Wow. How long did the Beatles play? Uh, I think about a half an hour. Wow. But you got to remember, too, the songs average, you know, two minutes, two and a half minutes. So a half an hour, they actually played quite a few numbers. Wow. And I really don't remember the set list. The only thing I do remember was I believe the first song was rock and roll music. That okay. stuck in my head. But I really can't remember what else they played. 66? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, what, what, do you know what they closed with? can't remember right. i think maybe no i know they closed the 65 concert with i'm down okay I, but i can't i can't remember god it was a long time ago so, so as a as a as a as a, a big fan you just watched some of the greatest music and then you know your your great you know band to watch when you left who'd you go with i went with a guy who was a friend i mean we were only 14 years old and we lived in roslyn at the time Took the train, shows you how time has changed, yeah. to two 14-year-olds on the railroad going to Shea Stadium. You wouldn't see that these days too often. No. But he really wasn't even that big of a Beatles fan, which makes it even more funny and ridiculous. He, he liked his favorite bands, I believe, if I remember correctly, were The Ventures. Remember them, the instrumental group? No. The Ventures, Walk, Don't Run. Okay. Um, Wipeout. They did Wipeout. Oh, Wipeout, okay. Well, they didn't actually do the Wipeout, but they did Wipeout. Okay. And the Stones. He was well, a Stones fan. He liked, you know, I remember him. He was big on, you know, 
66, I guess, by then, satisfaction. And, um, and it, well, I'm trying to think of the other one with the riff. Last time. Oh, oh yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, playing with fire and as tears go by, you know, the stones of that era. And we would get into some heated discussions as to whether, <laughs> whether you know, who the better band was. But, uh, yeah, he wasn't even really a, that big of a Beatle fan, but he wanted to see what it was all about. So we went. So what was what was his impression of the concert? Oh, uh, I thought it was okay. I mean, he, I don't think he was, you know, completely, well, you know, blown away by it or anything. Were you blown away? Yeah. I was uh, I was pretty amazed. Um, again, you know, at that young age, I mean, I really didn't know much about, you know, I mean, I knew some things about music because even then I was playing in a band, but didn't know that much about it. I knew it sounded good. Um wasn't until I got older that I realized what they were, how difficult what they were doing. No monitors. I mean, they couldn't hear anything. It's amazing they all sang in tune. <laughs> you know, fifty thousand people screaming in your face, and uh, I mean, they didn't have anything as as simple as a, as a tuner even. So even their guitars and everything were in tune. You know, based on just the hearing it, wow. which is pretty cool. And they were musicians, man. They were superior. They were superior. Now, what did you, what did you, what did you take from that show? You know, what did you take from that show? Well, I mean, and how it, did that? It was part of the dream. I mean, I always wanted to, from that point onward, no matter what I did in my life, go to school, get a job, whatever. I always wanted to be a musician, and you know, preferably somebody who wrote my own music and was famous. I mean. We all wanted to be fam- rich and famous. I mean, when you're 14 years old, I mean, what else is there? <laughs> Girls and money, right? I mean, that's really what it was all about. Cars and surfing. <laughs> and everybody, that, you know, all the interviews you hear with, like, people like David Crosby and Stephen Stills and Jimi Hendrix and John Lennon himself. I mean, it was all about girls and money. I mean, what else could it be, you know? Which was the subject of many a tune. Absolutely. <laughs> um, were you taking any music lessons at this point? Well, I had taken, you know, I had taken quite a few lessons on the clarinet. You can't learn to play that instrument just by luck, right? But what you know, but you were. But you were I doing... took some drum lessons. Right. Yeah, I took drum lessons for a short period, and when I realized I could, it would be very difficult to write music on drums. You know, I became, uh, I got more interested in bass and guitar because it was a melodic thing. Actually, bass first because I heard Revolver and. Uh, Rover Sold and then Sergeant Pepper later on and I heard the amazing bass playing that McCartney was doing and I said wow that's cool so I wanted to do that I taught myself basically Wow! I uh, never took a guitar lesson actually I'm lying my father showed me how to play an A chord 5th fret bar because he was a guitar player and I figured out the whole instrument from that Wow! because it's all mathematics and the irony of that is that I am did nothing but score the worst grades in history in school in math. Couldn't do it. But music is incredibly mathematical, and for some reason I was able to do that. I don't know why. Well, you know, it's like, it's like the joke where, like, you know, you see on TV, they ask some kids some math questions. He says, all right, you go to the store, and a clock bar is, you know, $5.84, and you have $32.18. How many can you buy? And the kid goes, like, you know, 46 <laughs> Well, but, so maybe it's just the context. That Who knows? kid needs to be smacked in the head. I'm sorry. <laughs> Anybody that could do that off the top. Actually, regular math, plain old every day, every, you know, just 
living your life math, I'm really good at. So obviously it's all, so we have a minute in this segment. So, so there, 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 obviously you, you went to school, uh, where'd you grow up in Roslyn? Well, I was born in Brooklyn. Okay. My father built a house in Roslyn in 1962 and I lived in Roslyn until I, um, pretty much graduated from high school. But I, I, we actually, it's a complicated story. We moved back to Brooklyn because the old man couldn't really afford living in Roslyn and then, um, spent a year in Brooklyn. Okay. Lafayette High School, the baseball school, Sandy Koufax and Joe Torrey and Lee Mazzilli and all these guys went to that school. And then when they felt like they could afford to live in Roslyn again, a year later, we moved back and I ended up graduating from Herrick's High School. So it was kind of strange. I had two sets of friends, everybody in Roslyn and everybody in Brooklyn. <laughs> that, that probably paid off sometime later yeah, on. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, there were a lot of cool musicians in Brooklyn, too. I got to jam and hang out with people and I learned a lot, you know, living there in that year so. All right, so we're going to take a quick break. We're going to listen to Storm Warning. Uh, that's one of your tunes. Well, and yeah, one gonna... of my instrumentals that I wrote with uh, Paul Brokaw, who's one of my par- is my partner in business. All right, so we're going to we'll be back on the other side of this break, but enjoy this music called Storm Warning. You can catch it at joerafano.com. Rich Solomon and Joe Rafano. This song is called On the River. Why don't you enjoy it for a second while it continues? All right, welcome back. Uh, Richard Solomon, Joe Rafano, joerafano.com. And uh, this guy is just fascinating. And I tell you, it's really cool to meet people who love and are immersed in music. If you missed the first part, uh, hit the rewind button or catch us up on YouTube or all of our different platforms because he actually went to see the Beatles in 66, which many people can't really say. That's very so, true. You know, you, you didn't save the stub, did you? You know, it's a, it's a sad story. <laughs> I had the stub and I also had a letter from Sid Bernstein that said, Dear Beatle fan, contrary to popular belief, there are tickets available because people said, oh, it's sold out. So people were assuming that it was sold out so people didn't buy tickets so they didn't sell out. And I had it on the wall in a frame in a, in a place where I lived with a bunch of guys, and it was unfortunately stolen off the <sighs> wall. And I'm sure it was uninsured. <laughs> no, I mean, I was, you know, yeah. I was 20 years yeah. old. Wow. Wow. But, yeah. Talk about a piece of rock history. But you know what? I met Sid years later, and uh, some guy was selling uh, Shea Stadium tickets. And the little flyer that came with them that said, you know, dear Beatle fans, the Beatles are return- coming at Shea and all this kind of thing. So I bought it. Okay. And I had Sid sign it, and it hangs on the wall of my office, even though it's not the actual ticket that I had. Close. It's close. Yeah. I, I mean, it is the same ticket. I, I recognize yeah. it. It has that little picture on it and everything. But, you know. Eh. And was it a $5 ticket? Uh, I think so. Five fifty. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Just all right. So, you graduate. 
Where does life take you next? After high school? Yeah. I uh, went to Nassau Community College for a couple of years. Right. And, and um, you know, at that point I, I had been playing in, you know, several different bands. And um, I don't know, I, wasn't, I guess I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. I went to New York Tech because I was interested in television and media because my father, you know, that was my summer job, which actually leads us into another Beatles story. We, we we love stories. This is I, uh, this is story time with Rich Solomon. <laughs> I was uh, a part of my summer job, and it was uh, my last official duty in the summertime. Was I was the ca- one of the cameramen on the Jerry Lewis telethon? Really? Because that used to be a, it was done by WNEW TV, and then it was they hooked up to all the other stations across the country. Of course, it wasn't as big as it became, but it was a big deal. And I was in college, I guess I was in my first year of college, which would have been somewhere around 1971. And here I was, there was three cameras, left, right, and center on the center camera. I'm a kid. The only reason I'm there is because my father worked there for 38 years. So that was your, my father's place. <laughs> yeah, right. So I, uh, I guess it was, I think it was the Statler Hilton was where they used to have the, the shows. 53rd and 6th yeah, Avenue. something yep. like that. Yep. So... Here like we that, were yeah. doing the telethon. It was a 12-hour shift. Uh, it was amazing. It made a ton of money because it was all union. And I'm on camera, and, you know, there's Jerry up there doing his thing. And the director of the show in my headset says to me, look to your right, but don't move the camera. So, you know, at first <laughs> I'm confused. I thought maybe I didn't hear him properly. I said, you know, come again. He said, look to your right. But do not move the camera. So I turned to my right, and John and Yoko were standing 10 feet away. They had been watching into Dakota or wherever they were living in those days, 1971. Maybe they were still downtown, and, you know, they were in that weird little apartment. And they were watching, and they came down. And the look on Jerry Lewis's face was was priceless. He looked like he was going to have a heart attack. Wow. And uh, Lennon... uh, I guess it, it must have been a cold Labor Day weekend because I think he was wearing that fur coat that he was known for. And they went up and they, they donated $10,000, which in 1971 was a ridiculously massive amount of money. So that was another Beatle thing that happened to me, you know, five years after having seen them uh, live. Did you get to interact with them at all? Or? No. No. I mean, they looked at me. <laughs> I looked at them. They saw me looking at them and smiling. I mean, you know. Um, but that's as close as I got to him. Wow, interesting, interesting. Yeah. Funny story, right? You know, it, 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 life is the intersection between preparation and opportunity. So you had opportunity, and you were you were prepared for the moment. So yeah, there you, go. you know, it was a, it was a pretty amazing thing. All right, so after so after this, what what leads you next, and where 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 are we gonna where are we gonna go musically? Musically, what what are your music directions? Well, an old friend of mine. Um, had discovered this new band that nobody had ever heard of. I know I'd never heard of them, called the Allman Brothers. And uh, I ran into him, and he said he wanted, was interested in starting a band. But he would only be in it if we did Allman Brothers music. And I was like, well, who the heck are the Allman Brothers? And I've never even heard of them. Anyway, so that was the next thing. I, I got to hear the Allman Brothers and, you know, the kind of styles and things that they were doing. And it was almost like taking music lessons because he taught me their music. And I learned so much 
from playing their music in the early 70s. It was ridiculous. And so I, I always have a, um, a fond feeling for, Allman, for the Allman Brothers and their music and actually got to see them a bunch of times. You know, it's funny. I skipped over a whole thing. I, I saw Jimi Hendrix three times also. Wow. Now, was and, this Jimi Hendrix experience, Band of Gypsies? Which, uh, experience. Which, okay. And uh, that really influenced me a lot as well. But, you know, I'm a 60s guy. I mean, I saw Cream. I saw The Doors. All these people live. And they all put their stamp you know, on my musical consciousness, for lack of a better description. All right, so let, let's 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 go. The where did you see Jimi Hendrix? Saw Jimi with uh, opening for the Monkees. Okay, that's in, an interesting pairing. In, what, was that, <laughs> what was that? I guess that was '67 at at Forest Hills when the Monkees were on tour. Never heard of Jimi Hendrix. Never saw him before. Uh, I was in '67. I guess I was 15. And he just blew the doors off everything. I mean, immediately the next day, I had to go out and buy the album. And uh, that was, wow. I, it's hard to describe that experience. Well, what, what was it like to see Jimi Hendrix and then the Monkees? Because, you know, they, they don't really seem like they, 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 they don't really seem like they belong well, together. Well, it was all Mickey Dolan's idea. Years later, when I was on, you know, out playing with Mickey, I had long conversations with him about that concert. And I even said to him, you're probably not going to believe this, but I was there. And Mickey's had seen Jimmy at Monterey, and he was the one who suggested that they take him on tour. Because, you know, the Monkees, for all of their teeny bopper, you know, juvenile sort of, like, thing, they were really into the music. I mean, they were really into it. And uh, he loved Jimmy and wanted to take him on the road just so that he could help, you know, almost like break him in the United States. It was very odd. I was not a big monkey guy. The reason that I was there is somebody I went to high school with who knew me and Les Stoller and some other people that I went to high school with, his father worked at Forest Hills. So we had 10th row center seats, wow. which were $10 in those days uh, for this band, The Monkees. And I mean, I had certainly seen the TV show, and I thought it was okay. I mean, yeah. it was like... You know, four American guys try, or three Americans and an English guy doing a hard day's night every week on television. It was basically what it was. A um, little less documentary than a hard day's night, but I mean, you got the idea. They wanted to be the Beatles. And uh, so, I mean, I like some of the music. I mean, how could you not? Oh, yeah, the music was. I mean, it was written by yeah. people like, you know, Carol King and. Uh, yeah, you know, people of that ilk. Right, right. From that, Neil Diamond, you know, wrote I'm a Believer. So, yeah. So, I mean, the music was cool. So I went and I checked it out. And I, I'm telling you, me and the two guys I was with at the show, we had no idea about Jimi Hendrix. I mean, he was like an alien dropped from Mars. <laughs> I mean, with the flowered bell bottoms and the afros out to here and, you know, the, the volume. It was so loud. And the playing was so completely unlike anything that was going on in pop and rock music at that time. Wasn't he also a lefty? Yeah, so, a left-handed black guy. <laughs> I mean, you know, it was, it was like, wow, this is so completely different. So, I mean, that was a big influence. But then after Jimmy, then came the Allman Brothers a few years later. And, uh, I mean, I like Clapton. I love Cream. I mean, you know, I was influenced by all of those things. And I saw all those people live. Um, you know, it's interesting. Do you ever see the Eric Clapton documentary, Life in 12 Bars? Yes, I have. It was interesting because uh, they talked a lot about Dwayne Allman's influence on, you know, the Layla 
and other songs. Well, yeah, yeah I you mean, know. it was, you know, Clapton loved them. He loved Wayne, I mean, uh, as a person and what he was doing musically. And, um, yeah, that album would not be what it is if Dwayne Allman had not played with him. I think Dwayne pushed Clapton, pushed him hard, to, and took him into places he may not have gone. And, um, yeah. Well, Clapton also was with the Beatles, too. So, they, you know, they all kind of... Well, Clapton loved Jimmy, too. Yeah. I mean, Clapton was crushed when Jimmy died. I mean, he, he in interviews, he said that he felt like Jimmy was one of the few people that he could actually, you know, communicate with. And, you know, Jimmy understood. And Clapton understood Jimmy's thing, you know. And it's... I, did you ever see the thing with Pete Townsend and Clapton? Townsend talks about how when Jimmy, first time he played in England... He goes, this guy's going to put us out of business. Yeah, he was so... <laughs> and he said, I wasn't even friends with Eric Clapton. But I called him up and we went to the movies together. And they spent the afternoon talking about Jimi Hendrix. And, you know, how crazy it was that this guy was just so beyond anybody. And, you know, when you think about it, even Paul McCartney was involved. Paul McCartney had a lot to do with getting the Beatles and a lot of the other, you know, the Stones and other people involved with Jimi Hendrix because he had sort of discovered him. And when he, when Jimmy played in England, he brought every all the rock royalty, I guess you would call them, all down to see Jimmy. And, you know, it's a funny thing. The week that Sgt. Pepper was released in England, Jimmy, like that week, the Beatles and all these people showed up at a concert he was doing in London, and he played his take his version of the Sgt. Pepper, you know, theme on the guitar and did all this wild stuff, and they were just completely blown away that he could learn it so quickly and then not only learn it, but interpret it. Right. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, when you listen to All Along the Watchtower by Jimi Hendrix, a lot of people to this day don't know that that was actually a Dylan song, Correct. even though so many people have covered it. Uh, Dave Mason has now, done I was it. I mean, the Dave Mason version was the one I think that most people knew before Jimmy did it. Right, but but you know, so a lot of people have done it. Um, I think even the Grateful Dead didn't the Grateful Dead do a cover of it? I think. You know what? The Grateful Dead are not on my radar. <laughs> Never been a fan. But, but uh, yeah, but, probably. But, but Jimmy's version was just so amazing. You know, uh, it's yeah. it's a masterpiece. Yeah. I mean, it is. It's literally a rock masterpiece. If you listen to everything that's going on on that recording, it's just unbelievable. The, you see, the thing about Jimi Hendrix was, even in this, in this era, a lot of people can play it. I mean, Stevie Ray showed us that, you know, it can be done. But it's the imagination. You know, Jimi created all of that. It wasn't just playing. He invented it. I try to explain that to young people about the Beatles. You know, they, you, you had to kind of live through it. I mean, a lot of young people do get it. But what they were doing was so revolutionary for its time. You I mean tracking, overdubbing. A lot of people, nobody did that really. You might overdub a vocal, but you wouldn't overdub 15 tracks of instruments. And I mean, they were using the studio as their palette. You know, they were painting with sound. And nobody really did that before they did it. You know, it started, I guess, with Rubber Soul. And, you know, it it worked its way. Uh, by the time it got to Sgt. Pepper, I mean, it was out of control. But, I mean, listen to what goes on in Revolver. Tomorrow Never Knows. George Martin made a very interesting comment in an interview that that song could not exist in the real world. It could only exist as a recording in the studio. Okay. Which is absolutely true. 
because there's really no way to perform everything that was going on. Unless you have a tape recorder in the back. <laughs> well, nowadays, you could sample it all yeah. and trigger it. Yeah. But is that really performing it? Not really. Not really, but it's not Milli Vanilli. It's, you know. You know. Exactly. All right. So, so you've seen all these great performers. Um, do you have any pictures or memorabilia, T-shirts from any of this stuff? I have some video from Shea Stadium that my father let me use his video camera. God only knows where that is. I think I have a little tiny reel of film. Um, Jimi Hendrix. No. I was at Bangladesh. Wow. With a friend. He's got photographs he took of that show because I've seen them. Um, That's great yeah. content, that stuff. Yeah. I, well, in those days, you didn't really take a, you didn't bring a camera to the concert. No. It wasn't like now. Everybody's got a phone and they shoot everything. You didn't shoot stuff like that. You know what I mean? And I mean, here I was at the Singer Bowl. You know, digging on Jimi Hendrix, and I, you know, I wasn't thinking about taking pictures. <laughs> I was probably, you know, under the influence of substances, um, and I was really digging the music. That's an interesting thing. We were talking about the Beatles for five dollars, and all the people that were on before them. How about this one for three dollars and fifty cents? You got to see Janis Joplin. We didn't know who she was. Some blues singer. My cousin was her sound man. Yep. Um, the Chambers Brothers who had just had a huge hit with Time Has Come Today. Okay, so you got the two of them, and I think the so oh, and the Soft Machine also. Those were the warm-up bands for Jimi Hendrix wow. for $3.50. A bargain. <laughs> Talk about times changing, man. That was a funny show. I, we Every time I get together with the people that were at that show, we laugh because one of the guys that was with us became so stoned that he fell asleep on a park bench and when he woke up, they'd stolen his boots, his ja leather jacket, his hat, they just his T-shirt. It was you know, <laughs> it was summertime. They left him sleeping on the park bench in his pants, <laughs> basically in his socks. Oh, it was a different era. All right, let me. I want to play "Chase the Dream," and then we're going to go into a quick break. So let's take a peek okay. at this song. Tell me. So for those who are listening, this is Richard Solomon taking care of business. My father's plays radio. Out of the question. And we're with Joe Rafano. We're going to play a minute of Chase the Dream. We'll be right back.
Rocking with Rich Salmon and my special guest, Joe Rafano. We're listening to a song called I'll Remember You, sung by Shannon Ray Amoroso. Tell me about that song. I'm going to play it in the background. Uh, well, it was a, we had a, a project um, in my day job, <laughs> which is a company called Media Mechanics. We produce video and music and radio and TV commercials and all kinds of things. And uh, we were asked to write a song for a TV show. I can't remember what show it was or anything like that uh but um that was the outcome right so Shannon Ray was uh, an awesome talent on long island for many years she uh she has moved to florida with her family but uh we speak she's a very uh very talented girl well tell her that she's got a beautiful voice tell, yeah tell I, her that rich song says you got a beautiful voice i will and, yeah i'll do and, that when and i talk I'm, to her i'm glad to have played her on the radio and have her on fm all right so we only have 17 minutes, so we got to do the lightning round. All right, so you actually played at my father's place. Yeah, back in the late 70s uh, with uh, Kenny P and uh, Rocket 88. I, uh, we opened for uh, Greg Ullman. I think we opened for Roy Gallagher. It was fun. That's where I met Epi, actually, in the mid-70s. And, uh, you know, uh, I guess we were, you know, begging for him to uh, book us. Right. <laughs> so, so what is it like to play... 30 years later at my the new my father's awesome. place. Love you it. Know? So, Epi knows Les Stoller, and he knew that I was involved with Les, and we he was booking some small little places around Seacliff and Glen Cove before the new my father's right. place opened. And um, he actually booked... I have the I have the, the the honor and distinction of being the only cover band Epi has ever booked in his entire career, that being the Liverpool Shuffle, the Beatles band that I'm the leader of, and we did a show for him, and he really dug it, and um, so we're going to be at my father's place. All right, for like a Beatles Sunday brunch on. Sunday, September 23rd, which is coming up soon. All right. Now, for those people listening on iTunes, YouTube, and our other platforms, if you missed it and this is the future and this is historic, uh, go to myfathersplace.com or joerafano.com and then look on the website. Maybe you'll catch them on the, on a return, <laughs> on a return somewhere, you know. So, cause we, we post these things, they stay up there forever. Cool. Right. So let's, let's talk about the Liverpool shuffle. How'd that start? What's it all about? Um, I was on the road with Hermits Hermits in, I guess it was 2003, and uh, a a Beatles tribute band opened for us in Syracuse, New York, and I was intrigued. I mean, I had heard of Beatles tributes. I mean, Beatlemania was on Broadway and all that. Um, Had never seen a Beatles band. I thought they were pretty cool. And me being a Beatles guy from way back, uh, you know, it kind of like started thinking about, wow, you know, it might be fun to uh, do a Beatle thing. So I got, I came home from, you know, playing, and I said, well, what am I going to do? And I started looking for people, found some people, did, you know, uh, put together something. You know, it lasted for a very short period. It was hard to get gigs. and But I was always on the lookout, you know, looking for the right pieces. And I found some people, I was, like I say, I'm very lucky and privileged to have been able to play with some really good people and met some good people. And um, years later, put together a band and had some notoriety and success. That band broke up. 
but then I went and got more guys. Um, the guys that I'm playing with now who all have Beatle backgrounds. I mean, the, the bass player, Freddie Giovanelli, actually worked for Paul McCartney for three years as a roadie and a guitar tech. And uh, sounds very much like him singing-wise. He's really got it down. Sir Paul himself can't sing like this guy <laughs> anymore. But, uh, you know, one of the other guys, uh, Jamie Bateman, had, you know, subbed with various Beatle bands. And I had also had his own band, Late Night Audio, which was a pretty popular band on Long Island. And the drummer, Brian, also had played with a lot of different uh, Beatle bands. So everybody had the background, and they all had the feel and the sound, and and here we are. Wow. You know, four years later, you know, a total, I guess, a total of about 15 years for me. I'm the one constant. A lot of the other guys, you know, they came and they went. But, um, yeah, still playing. Uh, like, like I said, we're going to be at my father's place. We, you know, we've done a lot of the gigs around Long Island, Old Westbury Gardens and Cedar Beach and... Um, you know, a lot of the, those type of shows all around the, play, uh, the place, and uh, still going. Right. Still going. And is there a website, LiverpoolShuffle.com? TheLiverpoolShuffle.com. Right. There's video, there's a calendar, there's contact information, all that stuff is there. All right, We perfect. also have a Facebook page, and, you know, you can see videos and things there. All right, perfect. So let's talk about Peter Noon. Okay. All right. You played with uh, Peter Noon. Yes. Tell me about that. That's that's got to be you know, pretty special. It was, uh, you know, it, it you know, like what I was saying before about being young and wanting to be in a famous band and all that. So it was great. You know, I got a call from a friend who I played with, uh, Vance Brescia, who was Peter's musical director, and I had played with Vance for many years with the Denise Gibbon Band, which is also, you know, at the time was a very popular Long Island band. So he called me up and he said, I, you know, I'm a guitar player, basically, but, you know, I played a lot of bass. And he said, I know you're a really good bass player. Would you be interested in playing with Peter Noon? And I was like, really? Hermit's Hermit's? He's, he's still playing? <laughs> he's still on the road? And he said, yeah, man, it might be a lot of fun. So I said, sure, let's do it. So I, you know, did an audition. Actually, they took me and my wife and put us on a Caribbean cruise, all expenses paid. And they said, you know, your audition will be you're going to play some shows with Peter on the on the cruise. So not only was it all expenses paid, but they paid me to do it. Wow. I was like, wow, this beats is, a sharp stick in the eye. This is, <laughs> this, yeah, this is this is great. And Peter and I, you know, hit it off right away. We became friendly, and uh, yeah, I ended up being, I guess you'd say, I was his principal bass player for about six years. Played, I don't know, two hundred fifty shows. Got a real taste for what it was like to be on the road, and it wasn't easy. It wasn't glamorous, believe me. It was very hard work. And I bet you the food's kind of crummy. Food was pretty crummy, unless Peter took us out, which he was known to do from time to time. We were, if we were in a particular city and he liked a particular restaurant, we would go out and have dinner and stuff. But it was a lot, it was great. Uh, the money was decent. It wasn't you know it wasn't spectacular. But, you know, I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot about being on the road and uh, met a lot of people, all the people in the other oldies bands on the circuit because we played with a lot of them. Chad and Jeremy. Uh, you know, I knew Jeremy Clyde, so yeah. yeah. And, the, you know, the uh, Grassroots, the Buckinghams, uh, you know, those kind of people. And um, really, it was it was enjoyable. It was hard, but it was enjoyable. And I met the Monkees, and I met Mickey Dolenz, and next thing I know... Um, the guy who was with the monkeys uh, suggested that I 
play with them because he had got another job and moved on to something else. So I played with them for like 18 months. And uh, well, that, what was that like? It was great. I really enjoyed it. I, I liked their music, and I the guys in the band were uh, fun guys. They fired me. They said I wasn't professional enough, which was pretty humorous, actually. I mean, people that I knew on the circuit said that they never sounded better until I played with them. <laughs> but, you know, I think they, I don't know, I'm not really sure what the deal was, but somebody said that the guitar player maybe felt... Um, well, intimidated? Intimidated, because he knew I was also a guitar player, which I had no designs on his job. I really didn't. I was perfectly happy being the bass player. But, um, eh, you know, life is strange. You run into all kinds of situations. So you played so many different genres of music and so many kinds of bands and so many different instruments. you got guitar, bass, um, <laughs> saxophone, uh, <laughs> drums. You know, you played with Allman Brothers music, Beatles music, uh, Hermits, Hermits, all these. Yeah, I was in a and, power trio, too, when I was a kid. We did all Jimi Hendrix stuff, too, so, yeah. So, so what... So what, what what are you focusing on now? Because you have such a what a comprehensive base. You know, talk about a palette. You have all these skills, all these talents, and all these influences. So where is that taking you now? And what? Well, the Beatle thing. I mean, I'm loving it. I'm doing it. I'm playing it. It's been 15 years, but really, uh, my attention has been turned now towards the Stollers more than anything because it's my music. Okay, it's our music. It's original music. Um. I seem to have a knack for writing pop songs. We're not really a pop band. It's funny, I said to Les Stoller that I always fancied myself John Lennon. But in this band, he's more John Lennon than I am. I'm more Paul McCartney. I'm writing all these nice, cute little three, four-minute pop tunes, and he's writing all this like visionary, crazy stuff. <laughs> and I really respect him for it because it's, it's really hard to do. But... Um, yeah, I think that's that's kind of where my emphasis is now, because I I think we we'd like to do more original music and do more original dates. Oh, you know, look, I have no fantasies of becoming famous at my age and any of that, but it would be nice to open for people, famous people, be the warm-up act. And the Stollers is a people say, well, what is the Stollers? Well. If Steely Dan ran into John Lennon and then they got together with the band and did a jam session, that's kind of what we do. It's jazzy, it's Lennon-esque in its approach, and it's very, it's got a very funky Americana roots, rootsy kind of folky thing going on. It's sort of like alternative folk, if there's such a thing. And um, there's, I think that that would really work well as an opening act for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping that maybe Epi will even be able to get, turn us on to some of that kind of stuff. I'm sliding the copy of this show under his door tonight. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Oh, I'm going to, as soon as we can burn a CD, I'll just, I'll just head over and just slide it right well, thank under. Thank you. I appreciate and that. I'll, I'll, you know, and I'll just say, from a friend. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the Stollers, uh, the show we did at my father's place a few weeks ago really seemed like a, we got a really, really nice audience reaction. I mean, nobody knew who we were. I mean, there were a lot of people in the audience that we know, knew from growing up and all that, but they didn't know what, the, what what it was about. I mean, they were solely reacting emotionally to whatever it was we were playing. And I think that we, the consensus was that we, it was a really interesting show and people liked the music. It was something that they could get behind. Um 
it's very eclectic. I mean, we went from one jazzy sort of almost a political statement on the world in 2018 to a very romantic pop feel. So, you know, we, we've got some things going on there. I always thought that the bands that did that kind of stuff were my favorite bands anyway. You know, I don't want to hear the same thing album after album after album. It's like McCartney said, describing the White Album, we're the family grocer. You need apples, we give you apples. You need oatmeal, we give you oatmeal. You need coffee, we give you coffee. I like that idea. I think that's a cool thing. Well, yeah, you know, some of the biggest mistakes bands do is like, like, look, I love the band Boston, and I've said this many times, but they always try to recreate their first album yeah, and their was, subsequent albums. Yeah, it was the same thing over and over and yeah. over, which, I mean, what they did was really cool, and I enjoyed it. But, you know... But there was no leap forward. Yeah, yeah you know, no, no I'm, a, I'm one of these guys yeah. who believes in evolution, you know what I mean? It should evolve. Right. I can't... I, I, I would find it very hard to, to be writing the same music over and over and over and over. I mean, I wrote my first song when I was 11 years old. I'm not writing the same type of song I wrote then oh. now. Well, but you, you, you've lived so much more life. True. And, and that's it, why I, I think that you it ha, if your life... As a, as a person is evolving, then it, why wouldn't your art also evolve? It, hopefully it does. You know? So who do you listen to now? Like, like before a show, do you listen to anything on the right over? Or it's always you- something different. I have Spotify. I'll listen to Pat Metheny, who's okay. a, a very huge influence on me also. I love his approach. Um, I can dial into any number of his albums. And then I'll go to Zappa and listen to, you know, Joe's Garage <laughs> or, uh, you know, Apostrophe. It never fails to crack me up even, you know, th- 40 years later, I'm still laughing. And then I might go to Stephen Stills, who uh, has been a big influence on me, too. Uh, occasionally, I'll, you know, if I'm on my way to a show, maybe, you know, maybe I'll tune into Jimi Hendrix, Axis Boulder's Love or Focus, big favorite of mine, Jan Ackerman, Tice Van Leer from the 70s. Um, again, I list, I like it because they were pushing the envelope. They, you know, it was visionary. Let's let you know they were really making a statement. Um, I like people that take chances. Um, Is that what attracted you to bands like Hendrix and The Doors? Well, at and- the time, yeah, because at the time it was so. It was such a departure from what was going on. What What, what were The Doors like in concert? Well, everything you've heard, all the cliches are true. I mean, Morrison was a really booty, weird cat. Yeah, dark. <laughs> very dark. Very dark. I mean, I never saw him take his pants off on stage, but I do remember, I believe, that same tour that when they came, or maybe, yeah, it was before uh, Hartford. I believe it was Hartford, Connecticut, where he, he got actually got arrested yeah, and taken right. away. Um Maybe he decided he didn't want to be arrested after that, so I never saw that. But I do remember distinctly hearing about it on the news, and I guess I was maybe 16 or 17 years old and thinking, wow, how, I mean, talk about taking a chance and taking a leap. Why would you do that, you know? But um, it seemed like his whole, everything he did was about that, lyrically, everything. You know, when he died, they said he, he... what was he, 30 or something, but he had the body of a 90-year-old because he'd, like, he tried every drug. He did every, tried every experience, wanted to do everything a human being could do. It's like he almost, like, burned himself out, you know? You know, it's interesting. At the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, 
uh, there's a very interesting letter I think from his father to like his school, if I remember this correctly, because his father was like like a captain in the navy or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, I, I was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I, d- I actually saw that. Yeah, and it was sort of like, yeah, well, you know, young young Jim, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the little rambunctious. We we do our best <laughs> to show in the right way. You yeah, know? the Hermits did a show. Uh, actually, it's a PBS concert called the '60s. Invasion, or I don't know. It's if you're late night on PBS, you can catch it when they do their fundraising. Yeah, exactly. And I, I'm in the video because I was his bass player at the time. But that show was recorded in the auditorium where the Beatles played in 1964 in, the, in their American tour, and it's right across the street from where the the Rock and Roll, a couple of blocks down the street from where the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is. Wow. So when we played there, we all made a point to go. Uh, I've heard it was it's improved vastly improved. It wasn't really that great when we went and saw it. But uh. wow! All right, that is the fastest one hour of radio. We're gonna go out with a song called uh, "Usually," and uh, we're gonna. Oh, I like this one. This is uh, yeah. This was actually um, it was also written for a, a movie, I think. Um, so yeah, I dig this one. And this is sung by Alan Santorello. Yeah, Alan Santorello, who is little known on Long Island as Little Wilson. <laughs> he is Little Wilson, and the Little Wilson band, they're pretty pretty well known. All right, so uh, an amazing conversation. Thank you for a having phenomenal, me. I really appreciate it, and I really enjoyed myself. A really, really phenomenal career. JoeRafano.com, LiverpoolShuffle.com, and go to MyFathersPlace.com to check them out. We'll be seeing you next week.